A solo is when an instrumentalist or singer gets up and plays by themselves, but a soli is when a whole section gets up and plays something together. In jazz big band music, the sax section has to stand up when it's time for a sax soli, which honestly makes it kind of hard to read your music. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and I'm so glad that you've joined me to talk about music with solos, music with solis, and sometimes music where the whole ensemble plays 2D, or together. Thank you so much to all of my wonderful patrons who support me as I make this show and make all of this possible. Do you like strong songs enough to, say, buy the show a coffee every month? If so, go to patreon.com slash strong songs and sign up to be a patron and help keep this whole thing going. On this episode, Strong Covers returns for Volume 2, and we're going to be digging into covers of not one, not two, but three songs by one of the greatest bands of all time. There's so much great music on this episode, and I'm very excited to get into it, so let's tune up our strings, warm up our valves, and blow this thing. I feel like I keep talking about how music is a generational conversation, something that one artist says in one decade may be answered by another artist many decades later, and it just feels like the more I listen, the more time I spend going back and listening to older music and comparing it to work by more current artists, the more I hear that conversation and just start to see that big picture. It's something that could never fully come into focus because it's way, way too big for that, but you see these little slivers of it, and it's really a beautiful thing. And really nowhere is that more clear than when it comes to cover songs. So back in year three, I did Strong Covers Volume 1. I talked about a variety of covers that were just cover recordings that I really liked, that I thought granted some new insight into the song that they were covering in addition to just being great. And it was a really fun episode, and a lot of you agreed. It was a very popular episode from last year. Lots of people enjoyed it, and a lot of people wrote in with suggestions for covers that I could do in the future, since I said at the outset that I was going to do more episodes about covers. So here we are with Strong Covers Volume 2, and I'm going to be doing something a little bit different. I have this huge list of covers, a lot of them. I mean, every time someone emails me and tells me some covers that I should do, I do add it to this list. So it's a gigantic list, and I was just sort of looking through it thinking, well, what should I do for Volume 2? Should I just pick a few more, kind of like I did in Volume 1? Is there some theme I can go with, something that will unify them? And then I realized that three of my favorite covers that I had put on the list when I was first putting it together did have something in common. They were all covers of the same band. It's actually a band that I've talked about on this show before, and that's what we're going to be doing on this episode, focusing on three songs by the same band covered by a variety of amazing artists, including other artists that I've also talked about on this show before. In fact, let's kick things off with a cover by a band that I talked about just last fall, shall we? On this episode, we're going to be talking about covers of three songs by those lads from Liverpool, The Beatles. Beatles songs don't just live on in their original form, but in countless reinterpretations by countless great bands. So let's get started with a cover of a soulful tune off of the Beatles' 1966 record Revolver, Paul McCartney's Gotta Get You Into My Life. Covered in 1978 by who else? You probably already know the answer. Those three magical musical elements of earth, wind, and fire. 
Island Fire's cover of Paul McCartney's Gotta Get You Into My Life is remarkable for just what a radical remake it really is. At every turn, it adds jazz complexity and rhythmic bounce to the simple Motown-influenced original, all while never straying too far from where the song began. I was alone, I took a ride, I didn't know what I would find there. Another road where maybe I could see another kind of mind there. The original song had a lot of really cool ideas, and they're presented very clearly in that way that the Beatles tended to, which provided ample opportunity for Earth, Wind & Fire to take those core elements and elaborate on them in a lot of really cool ways. You didn't run, you didn't lie, you knew I wanted just to hold you. And had you gone, you knew in time would be again before I told. It's such a fascinating cover to me because it's at once very similar to the original song and also completely different at every turn, and I think that that is a really interesting and hard thing to do. So just a note up front before we get started, since the perfectly pitched among you may have already noticed this, Gotta Get You Into My Life is in the key of G major, that's the key that the Beatles recorded it in, but the Earth, Wind & Fire version as it plays on the record, it's not quite in G and it's not quite in G sharp, it's like 30 cents below G sharp, so it's somewhere in between the two notes. I've watched some videos of EWF playing it live and they play it live in G. So I've gone and pitch corrected the Earth, Wind & Fire version down 70 cents so that it's in G2 just to keep things consistent and so that we're not constantly jumping between microtonally different versions of the recording. So the song is in G and we're just going to say that everybody plays it in G and all the chords I'm going to talk about are in G. So with that out of the way, let's get into it. Let's get into this arrangement. The Earth, Wind & Fire cover of this song elaborates on the original in pretty much every way that you can. It adds new harmonic ideas, new rhythmic ideas, and new ideas to the arrangement. Let's start with the harmony. So going back to the original, this is a really cool song. It's been fun learning it because, like a lot of McCartney's songs, it's this interesting mix of complicated and simple. It's not really complicated, it doesn't have a bunch of chord extensions and really wacky harmony going on, but it's also not what I would call simple. It's got some very interesting harmonic motion. The melody and the harmony interact in really thoughtful and interesting ways. It's just a very Paul McCartney kind of a song, and I like that about it because I like the way that Paul McCartney writes songs. So, Gotta Get You Into My Life is in the key of G, and the verse is divided between kind of two sections. There's that first ascending section where it moves up the G chord, then it goes to this F major over G. There's this kind of G pedal going the whole time, which just means a steady bass note, even as it changes to that F chord. There's then an F over G, which is a really lovely sound, then it goes back to G. That's the first section of the verse, and then the second section goes up to the three minor. It goes up to B minor, and it does this kind of descending thing where it goes B minor, B minor major seven, B minor seven, B minor 6, that's a very common chord progression because it sort of has this half-step descent happening in it. It's very, very dramatic. But before we even get to that section, because that's more harmonically complex and Earth, Wind & Fire actually doesn't change that much on that section, they do change something pretty significant on the first section, on that pedal tone section in G, and that is right off the bat, they convert those chords from triads, a G major triad, to an F major triad over G, to seventh chords, a G major seventh chord, to an F major seventh over G. Another 
Now, since this came out in 1978, I'm going to assume that this is the same version of Earth, Wind & Fire that played on September, which most of you probably know I did an episode on last fall, last September actually. So go back and listen to that if you really want to hear more about Earth, Wind & Fire, but I'm going to assume that this is Maurice White on lead vocals, Philip Bailey is in there I think on the backups, Verdine White, his brother, is playing bass, Ralph Johnson's probably playing some percussion, someone's playing lead guitar, that might be Johnny Graham, there's somebody who takes a guitar solo at one point. The Phoenix Horns are definitely in on this one. There's some really great horn parts for them on this track. I think Al McKay is probably playing that guitar part you can hear over on the left. Fred White is playing drums, and I hear Larry Dunn, their keyboard player, playing some of those nice seventh chords in the middle. Now, if you remember from that episode, a funny thing about September is that every single chord in that song is a seventh chord, and I talked some in that episode about the difference between triads and seventh chords, and generally speaking, seventh chords just sound a little bit richer than triads because they have one extra note, so they have an extra piece of information. A triad goes one, three, five and the seventh chord goes one, three, five, seven. So a G major triad sounds like this, and a G major seven chord sounds like this. Now, if we listen to the original, it's actually pretty straightforward. McCartney's on bass, and he's just pedaling that G. You can hear the guitar playing the chords over there in the left, just kind of playing a G, and then he goes to an F major. And really, a lot of the harmonic work is being done by the horn section, who are over on the right, at least in this remix, in this stereo mix of the recording. I was alone, I took a ride, I didn't know what I would find It's a really nice sound. I mean, I love how this original sounds. I'm always going to be in favor of a band really letting the horns take the four, not just on horn melodies, but also on the song's harmony. It's definitely one cool thing about Revolver is that the Beatles were getting more into the idea of having other instruments provide the harmony on their songs rather than just guitar and keyboard. We'll actually talk about that more on the next song that we talk about, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. For now, what's going on in those horns, for the most part, is just triad-based harmony. So they're playing a G triad and an F triad over those two chords. Now that's very, very different from what Al McKay and Larry Dunn are playing on the Earth, Wind & Fire version. Listen to that verse and pay attention for those two parts. Al McKay is over on the left, he's playing this very groovy guitar part moving between G and F, and in the middle Larry Dunn is playing an electric piano, it's kind of down in the mix and it's this nice spacey thing, but he's mixing throughout, he's playing a bunch of these arpeggios that sort of float behind the vocals, so listen for those two parts. You hear that electric piano in the middle? It's subtle, but it's there throughout, and similar to Al McKay's guitar part, it's also more harmonically complex than what's going on in the Beatles song. They're both playing seventh chords, so there's a lot of F sharps in there, then there are E's in there when they go to the F major seventh chord, and those just add this richness and this flavor to things that just feels more lush and expansive, and it really changes the energy. And I want to stress here, it does not improve the song. It's not better just because there are more notes in each chord. It's just different. Earth, Wind & Fire is going for this more jazz-inflected, more complex and lush sound, but what the Beatles were getting and what McCartney was going for, what McCartney and George Martin, the producer, were going for, killer sound, that more 60s-style soul sound, that really works as well. It's just more aggressive. It kind of stomps its way forward, where the Earth, Wind & Fire version is much lighter on its feet and kind of skips its way forward, and a lot of that is because of the rhythmic changes that they've made to the groove on the song. You 
So the way that Ringo Starr plays this song is very propulsive. It just has a steady backbeat. It's just one, two, three, four. Pop, 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 pop. Kind of marches forward in this amiable but relentless way. Earth, Wind, and Fire, on the other hand, is approaching it completely differently. They're really emphasizing the triplet, and they're basically playing this as a kind of a 12-8 shuffle. Just a boogie to check it, a to check it, a boogie to check it, a triplet, triplet. Listen to Fred White's hi-hat here. It's somewhere between a swing tune and a shuffle, and it gives it that bounce, that swing, that keeps it floating forward. Both versions of this song groove, but the Earth, Wind, and Fire one swings quite a bit more, and that's a crucial distinction between the two of them. You can basically take a groove that's at this tempo, you know, one, two, three, four, and by emphasizing the triplet, turn it into a shuffle. Two, three, four. So when you look at Al McKay's guitar part, you know, it really underlines the difference in the groove, and you can hear that throughout the recording from start to finish. Everything about this performance, from the arrangement to the groove to the vocals, it's all so much smoother that's never clearer than during the chorus. Philip Bailey, man. I mean, if you need somebody to sing some head voice backups for you on your chorus, Philip Bailey is the guy to do it. It's really nice sounding stuff and very, very different from the original. I mean, that's it. The first time through, it's just this primal shout from Paul McCartney, and then they go right back into the verse. Meanwhile, Earth, Wind, and Fire makes a whole meal out of that. That chorus is so different. I want to slow down for a second just to really underline how dramatically different the chorus on the Earth, Wind & Fire version of this song is compared to the original. The original is super simple. It's three chords. McCartney just sings, gotta get you into my life over a G chord. Then it goes to a C, then to a D, and then back to G. So it's just one, four, five, one. Earth, Wind, and Fire turns it into this whole harmonic narrative. Like it's on G, and then it goes to C, then it goes to A dominant, then D dominant, then they do a tritone sub down to D flat 7, to C7, to A, to D, to G, up to C, and they just keep kind of cycling through this really jazzy, really involved progression that's harmonically really complicated, and that's not even to mention the fact that there's all of this vocal arranging going on too. It's pretty much a totally different song. I mean, it's a really dramatic reinterpretation. It's really a recomposition of the chorus to the song. In in 
It's really the prime example of what a maximalist cover this is. There's so many new ideas going on. There's a guitar solo. Verdine White is just going nuts on bass. <laughs> Horns are doing all this extra stuff. There's harmonies in the vocals. It's this, it's, it's a whole party. It really feels to me like this wildly creative band taking strong source material and putting their own spin on every single part of it until it becomes not unrecognizable, but very, very different. And that's why it works, arguably. It's more than just a straight homage. Earth, Wind & Fire is demonstrating that McCartney's original is strong enough to support so many new ideas and still be the same great song. So that Earth, Wind & Fire cover was recorded more than 10 years after the original recording came out. This next cover that we're going to talk about was actually just recorded a couple of years after the original, and it's another cover of a song off of Revolver. It's one of the most famous songs on Revolver. It's kind of hard to pick a most famous song, but it's certainly one of the best-known songs on the Beatles' Revolver, which came out in 1966. And just two years later, it was covered by a very well-known singer whose voice you will probably immediately recognize. In a way you might not expect, Eleanor Rigby actually lends itself to being reinterpreted, and I love what Ray Charles does with it. All the lonely people, but do they all come from? Yeah. All the Of course, the original is amazing, and it's another song on Revolver where the Beatles were experimenting with using other instruments than the guitar and the keyboards to provide harmony. In this case, it's a beautiful string arrangement that drives the entire recording. So this song is primarily credited to Paul McCartney, though each of the Beatles contributed their own ideas to it. It's a little more collaborative than Gotta Get You Into My Life or the final song that we're going to be talking about, which were both just Paul McCartney compositions. But it does have a lot of those McCartney-ish touches, that elegant mix of complexity and simplicity, the nice intersection of the melody and the harmony, those beautiful leading tones, which we'll be talking about a little bit more. Paul McCartney loves a leading tone, though. And yeah, I love this original recording. This is one of my favorite Beatles songs ever and one of my favorite Beatles recordings ever as well. So one of the remarkable things about this recording, and one of the reasons that it so lends itself to reinterpretation, is that it's actually a very simple arrangement. It's just a small string ensemble, some overdubbed vocals, and a really, really good melody. Father Mackenzie, writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear. No one comes near. Look at him working, darting his socks in the night when there's nobody there. What does he care? I heard him say, all the lonely people. Come on. 
Now I do want to zoom out for a minute. I want to just pause because I'm guessing that this is the point where some of you out there are thinking, okay, no, sorry. No, I stuck with you for the Earth, Wind & Fire cover, but Eleanor Rigby is perfect. It's a beautiful gem. No one can cover it. This whole thing is sacrilege. And obviously I don't agree. I think this cover is great. There are actually a lot of really cool covers of this song. I get why you feel that way. I get why people feel that way, especially about the Beatles and especially about their later stuff where there's only the one studio version and it was never really performed live. But I think that's exactly what makes it so interesting when other artists find a way to cover them and reinterpret their work. Like, I think this Ray Charles cover is particularly interesting because it's a contemporary cover as opposed to one done years later, like the Earth, Wind & Fire cover or like the third one we're going to be talking about. This was 68. This was just a couple of years after this song came out and it demonstrates some of the ways that the Beatles were in conversation with their artistic peers, with musicians who were making music at the same time as them. The Beatles would be the first to tell you that they owed a lot to the African-American musical tradition in particular, and Ray Charles, of course, a scion of black music, a master of rhythm and blues, and I think it's actually really interesting to hear him take one of their songs and flip it back to them. You can hear that cycle happening in real time, and I think that's just really cool and interesting, in addition to just thinking this cover is good. Anyways, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, these covers are sacrilege, I'm not on board for this, I hope that you'll just, you know, relax a little bit, think about that broader context, keep an open mind, and just enjoy the fact that Ray Charles can take a song as iconic as Eleanor Rigby and put his own unique stamp on it without losing sight of what made it great. So the first and most obvious change that Ray Charles makes, which I'm sure you already noticed just from that first example that I played, is he changes up the groove. And this orchestration, it's a big orchestration, there's a band, there's a rhythm section, and more of a studio orchestra with a couple of featured instruments uh, that we'll talk about in a little bit. But the groove just has way more of this link to it. It's a more of a kind of a Motown thing. It's groovier, and that really changes the energy of the song. Picks up the rice in the church where a wedding has been Lives in a dream, waits at the window so it's in the same key, both versions of the song are in E minor, it pretty much keeps the same chords, the form's a little bit different, they don't start with the All the Lonely People line, they start right on Eleanor Rigby, but it keeps the form largely the same, pretty much moves between two chords, E minor and C, those are the two primary chords of this song, but the groove is just so different, it has that kind of classic Motown boom, dun 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 kind of slinky groove and it totally changes the nature of the song like it just moves you differently when you hear it waits at the window wearing the face that she keeps in a jar by the door who is it for so if you compare that groove to the original, it's a striking difference. The original is purely driven by the strings. It's this very kind of marcato, driving string performance. Dun, dun, dun. Really pulsing quarter notes. But hearing this song with a snare drum and with a drum set playing, with a groove going, just is a very, very different experience. Eleanor Rigby picks up the rice in the church where a wedding has been. So 
the whole approach is just way more laid back and it lets Ray be a lot more loose with the way that he's interpreting the melody, which is nice because it's a cover, so he kind of gets to have a little bit more leeway with the way that he sings the melody since the original already exists and the original is fairly rigid in the way that Paul McCartney sings this melody. Now, as big of a difference as it makes to have a drum set and a bass and, you know, a full rhythm section on this, the player who's making the biggest difference is actually the tambourine player on the Ray Charles cover. Ray Charles's version uses the tambourine so well. It's such a killer tambourine performance. And that might not be the first instrument you would expect to make such a big difference. But as I've said many times, the tambourine, it is a small instrument and often overlooked, but it is a mighty instrument and it can really, really define a groove. And in this case, I mean, listen for that tambourine. It's over on the right during the verses. It's just hitting those backbeats, but it's adding just a little bit of flavor to the snare hits and just kind of opening things up a little bit. It's very nice. You feel that? Who is it for? Mm. Conversely, the tambourine's absence during this part is also really noticeable. So then when it comes back in for the next section, the tambourine runs away with the groove. Check this out. Tambourine player is just getting it done. I'm guessing they didn't pay the tambourine player what they should have because that groove is totally being defined by the tambourine. It's just this classic Motown soul sound. They've got that Motown groove going, that sort of pop forward groove, just pop, pop, pop pop with snare hits on all four beats. I've talked about that plenty of times on the show, but what really ties the whole thing together is the tambourine because the tambourine player is doing those quarter note hits with the snare drum, but also adding tambourine shakes in between. And it just gives it this classic super groovy sound that really sets it apart from the original. Now, as different as the groove is, Ray's also changed the harmony somewhat. He actually makes one really dramatic change right where we were just listening. He adds a whole new chord to the song, but for the most part, he's keeping the same harmonic structure as the original recording, but he is making some changes that increase the blues factor somewhat and give it that kind of more slinky, kind of more bluesy sound that's similar to how he's changed the groove. So Eleanor Rigby revolves around two chords primarily, E minor and C major. Most of the song is in some form of E minor, does some cool modal stuff that I'm not going to get into. It kind of starts on Dorian, then goes to Aeolian, but it's, it's all E minor. They move through E minor a little bit, that nice melody, that's all E minor, and then it dramatically shifts to the flat six, C major, which is a pretty dramatic shift, then goes right back to E minor. Listen for those two chords. Now listen to how Ray does it, and don't worry too much about picking out individual notes, but just listen to the vibe and see if you can detect how harmonically it might be a little bit different. Eleanor Rigby, 
When they go down to the sea, it's a little bit nastier, right? It's got a little more sauce on it. <laughs> so what is that, right? When Ray goes down to that C chord, it just sounds a little bit more saucy. It's got a little bit more vibe. And the reason for that is actually that Ray Charles has done the same thing that Earth, Wind & Fire did with Gotta Get You Into My Life. He's complexified the harmony by adding a seventh. Specifically, he's converted that C major chord that the Beatles played into a C dominant seventh chord, which adds a B flat to the C chord. And that is a crucial note to add and really adds a certain sound. Here's the difference. If we go from E minor to C major, it sounds like this. But if we go from E minor to C dominant seventh, it sounds like this. And that's where all that sauce is coming from. It's coming from that B flat. The reason for that is that B flat or the flat five is a really important note in the blues. It's even known as the blue note. If we're in the key of E minor and we play an E minor blues scale, that goes E, G, A, B flat, B, D, E. The B flat is the tritone, you know, it's a kind of a dissonant note relative to the E, and it's just very present in a lot of blues singing and a lot of blues playing. A lot of blues musicians would kind of bend their A up to that B flat or bend their B down to that B flat. A piano player might hit a B and a B flat at the same time. You've probably kind of heard that sound before, just putting them right next to each other. And it creates this really nice rub that while you can kind of, you know, codify it and make it a blues scale and talk about the B flat and the B and the A and it being the blue note, it's really just about finding that space in between the four and the five, between in this case the A and the B, and just stretching around in there, and that sound is one of the defining sounds of the blues. Now Ray Charles, of course, is a master of the blues. He grew up playing rhythm and blues music. He knows the blues inside and out on a just totally fundamental level. So when he picks up Eleanor Rigby, of course the first thing he does is turn that C major chord that sounds really beautiful when the Beatles play it. He turns it into a C dominant seven chord to get that blue note in there, which adds a whole different vibe to the song right off the bat. Eleanor picks up the rice in the church where a wedding has been. It's right there in the strings. It's subtle, but it's unmistakable. Just a side note here and something that I think is funny. Ray Charles, of course, an American, covering a song by the Beatles, an English band. And I really like that the rhyme doesn't actually work if you don't sing this with an English accent. Or I suppose I should say if you do sing this with an American accent. He sings, Eleanor Rigby picks up the rice in the church where the wedding has been because he's American and Americans tend to say Ben, that doesn't really rhyme with lives in a dream as well as the English pronunciation of where a wedding has been rhymes with lives in a dream much better. And Ray's like, you know what? I don't care. I'm going to sing it the way that I sing it. And he's right. It doesn't really matter. I just think it's sort of funny. Eleanor Rigby picks up the rice in the church where a wedding has been lives in a dream Eleanor Rigby Picks up the rice in the church where a wedding has been Lives in a dream 
So the next section of the song is the part where they sing all the lonely people. And what I like about this is actually that it uses chromatic voice leading in a really nice way. And this is true in the original and it's true in Ray's cover. And actually, this is something that Gotta Get You Into My Life does as well. And also something that the third song that we're going to talk about does too. So something to keep an ear out for. And I'm going to explain what I mean by chromatic voice leading because it's a cool concept and it's something that Paul McCartney gets a lot of mileage out of. What an evocative melody that is between the lyrics and the arrangement. It's just so beautiful. I mean, one of the most evocative melodies maybe ever written. All the lonely people, where do they all come from? That's an incredible lyric, and it's mixed with this really beautiful use of a static chord juxtaposed against a single moving tone that moves as a kind of a leading note through a voice-led chord progression. And I've been using that term, and I'll use it some more in this episode, the term voice leading. And I'm not going to do a whole explanation of it, but just really briefly, what that means is just when one chord moves to another chord, to another chord through a chord progression, each note in those chords is referred to as a voice. And if you zoom in on any given voice in a chord progression, if it's put together in a certain way, each of those individual voices will lead to a nearby note or a nearby voice in the next chord in the chord progression and that's called voice leading. Each voice leads to a nearby voice in the next chord in the chord progression, and as you follow those voices from one to the next, it forms a sort of a line, and if you follow any given note, any kind of path, it sort of leads you along this path through the chord progression. So that's basically what voice leading means. So let's talk about how that applies to Eleanor Rigby. So mostly we're just in E minor here, and most of the strings on the original are just playing an E minor chord, and then there's this one stringed instrument, I believe it's a cello, Um, it might be a viola, but I think it's a cello, and it plays a D, which is the minor seventh in E minor, so you get that nice seventh, and then as the other strings hold the E minor, and I'm just doing that with my piano right hand, that one string part moves down chromatically, it does this voice leading tone that goes from a D, which implies E minor seventh, then it goes to a C sharp or a D flat, and that's kind of kind of sounds a little like a four chord or maybe like an E minor sixth. Then it goes to a C natural, which sort of implies a C major tonality, and then it ends on a B. And that motion, that chromatic motion from D down to C sharp, down to C, down to B, that is just the key to this whole section. Listen to it in the original and I'll play along with it on piano. Who is it Now listen to Ray Charles do it, and what Ray does with his arrangement is it's really nice, actually. The French horn, there's a solo French horn that plays that note, and really it's a kind of a more mellow sound, but it's still there. And there's also this nice oboe over on the right that's playing a different note, it's just holding a B, and that kind of gives them this nice uh, contrast to one another, where the French horn is doing that steady chromatic descent while the oboe stays put. Listen for that. Oh, the It's nice, right? Look 
looking at these covers really gives a nice sense of some of Paul McCartney's songwriting tools, and he definitely loves using this technique where he holds some element of the harmony static, like a pedal tone, or maybe even just a full chord, and then he moves other things around using chromatic leading tones in this way that can create a nice sense of contrast and also a kind of nice harmonic sturdiness to what he's doing. The pre-chorus to Gotta Get You Into My Life also does this, where it goes from that B minor to the B minor major 7 to the B minor 7 to the B minor 6. That's a very similar kind of a thing. And the horns even really outline it in a similar way to what the strings do on Eleanor Rigby. With the horns, it's the trumpets that hold a steady chord on that B minor, while the saxophones move steadily downward, moving from B to B flat to A to A flat. Ooh, and I suddenly see you. Did I tell you I need And just like Ray Charles when he was covering Eleanor Rigby, Earth, Wind & Fire knew better than to do too much with that. They're like, this this part's pretty cool. We're going to stick with the voice leading and we're kind of just going to have the horns do a similar thing to what they did on the Beatles original. Goes to show Paul McCartney was really a master of voice leading, especially in pop songwriting. And if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Now there is one more big change that Ray makes, and it's coming up right here. Ever the blues musician Ray Charles decided, you know what this song really needs on the chorus is it needs a new chord, it needs a four chord. So on the second time that he sings, I look at all the lonely people, he actually goes to an A minor chord, which is a total invention of his that's an addition to the song, where in the original it just goes back and forth between E minor and C. Like the original is really just a two chord song, Ray Charles wants it to be a three chord song, so he adds a four chord right there at the end of the chorus. Here comes the four chord. <laughs> it adds a little bit of flair to the song, a little bit of drama. Father McKenzie, writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear. No one comes near. Look at him working. The urgency that Ray brings to his vocal performance, it's very, very different from the way that McCartney sings the original, but I think it matches with Ray's style. Ray Charles knows how to spin a yarn while he's singing a song, but he he's a little bit more conversational and a little bit looser, and it really works for the lyrics of this song. This is a very narrative song. The singer is observing these people and telling their story. Ray is such a great storyteller as a singer, and he, he really flexes that muscle with the way that he sings these lyrics. He has this narrative urgency to the whole thing. Father McKenzie, writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear. No one comes near, look at him working. Darting his socks in the night when there's nobody there. What does he care? That storytelling style that Ray is so famous for is really enhanced by the final element that I haven't talked about yet. And that's the Ray Letts. That's the group of female backup singers who would perform with Ray Charles. There were a whole lot of different singers. Margie Hendricks, obviously, Patricia Lyle, uh, Mary Clayton was in the Ray Letts for a minute, Minnie Ripperton, a ton of incredible singers that sort of cycled through that group over the years. The Ray Letts were a really important part of his sound.
What the Raylettes did was sing a more static melody that lets Ray do his freestyle thing and provides a nice sense of vocal contrast between the two different sounds. They also just do cool stuff like this. Those backup vocals performed by the Raylettes are really the final puzzle piece for this arrangement. They're a crucial part of the way the whole thing works, especially toward the end, when the arrangement opens up and they're able to provide just even more of that beautiful contrast with the more free and improvisational way that Ray is singing. It's a beautiful reinterpretation of a song that, though it was just two years old, had already established itself as an instant classic. The final cover we're going to talk about doesn't add new harmonies, it doesn't complexify the arrangement or add new instruments. It's a very different kind of cover, one that takes an already simple song and, just by the nature of its performance, renders that song's beauty in its starkest, simplest form. Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Boom, doo, doo, boom, doo, doo. Take this broken wings and learn to fly. For your life, you waiting for this moment to arrive. In 1984, Bobby McFerrin recorded a magical a cappella cover of Paul McCartney's Blackbird. Blackbird singing in the dead of night Take these sunken eyes and learn to see All your life You are only waiting for this moment to be free it's obviously like a really dramatic reinterpretation of the original, and yet somehow it doesn't even feel all that different to me. It has that same magic. It's a beautiful cover recorded live on stage in 1984. It's the first track from McFerrin's groundbreaking album, The Voice. And it's beautiful not just because it demonstrates McFerrin's virtuosic vocal abilities, and he also just has this ingenious ear for vocal arranging. He really understands how to write for The Voice because he understands The Voice on such an intimate level. But it also brings McCartney's genius into focus, the way that he writes those melodies with those brilliant, contoured, voice-led counter melodies, which of course come out in the amazing acoustic guitar part that he recorded for this song. There are so many covers of Blackbird, but Bobby McFerrin's is really the one that to me just captures that special quality that the original had. 
Something that McFerrin captures really beautifully is something that's evident throughout the original recording, and that is that same idea, that same concept of voice leading that I was talking about with the first two songs in this episode. Blackbird singing in the dead of night Take these broken wings and learn to fly All your life You were only waiting for this moment to arise If you've ever learned Blackbird on acoustic guitar, and I'm guessing that some of you out there have, this is a really fun song to learn if you're kind of getting a little more advanced on guitar and you're ready to start playing some fingerstyle stuff. It's in the key of G, and the guitar has a lot of open strings in the key of G, so it works really well, and you leave the G string, the third string, just ringing for a lot of this part, and as a result, you're moving all of these chromatic, you know, voice-led notes around with that G kind of just ringing out, and it gives it this beautiful cohesion as you play through the part. It's a very familiar kind of a shape and very flexible one because it allows for all of this voice leading as you move around. And again, that's kind of a signature Paul McCartney move. There's a static harmonic element, in this case the G, the open G string, and there's also this nice moving counter melody that's moving with voice leading, and that's what you're doing on the top and the bottom string. I'm currently playing this on acoustic and I'm going nice and slow and really emphasizing that open string in between each shape. So now listen back to the original and listen to McCartney's guitar playing and just pay attention to the fact that there is a static part of the guitar part, that ringing open string, and there's also a moving part of the guitar part, which is the other two notes that are on either side of the G as they move up the neck. Blackbird singing in the dead of night Take these broken wings and learn to fly now, when Bobby McFerrin performs this, he is going solo with just his voice. He does not have the luxury of playing an instrument like the guitar that can really easily make six notes at once. I know Bobby McFerrin can sing some multiphonics, but I don't think that he can do six notes at once, though if anybody was going to be able to do it, I suppose it would be him. So instead, he has to move very, very quickly. The vocal dexterity on display here is totally nuts as he bounces around between his bass register and his head voice and his middle register, and he moves through that same voice leading, but he's doing it just with his voice in these flicks, these kind of quick motions between different parts, the repeating tonic, the moving voice leading through the chord progression, and then also the melody while singing the lyrics at the same time. It's such a beautiful reinterpretation because he's making all these very smart choices about which notes to accentuate when so that he can convey the flow of the song while leaving out a lot just because by necessity he can't do all the notes that McCartney was doing on the guitar. It's all about that voice leading. It's all about those single note paths that McCartney initially created on the guitar, which then created paths that McFerrin could then follow, since he is singing with a single note instrument, that could still outline what's ultimately pretty complicated harmony. 
Let me just demonstrate that. I'm playing on piano right now. I'm just going to move through the next few chords of the song, and I'm going to play them in a more traditional voicing with a lot more notes, the way that I would just read this on piano if I was just reading a chord progression on a lead sheet. Now listen, I'm going to play way fewer notes. I'm just going to play the notes that McCartney plays on guitar, and that removes a whole lot of chord tones. We really just get those leading tones on either side of the static G, but listen for it. It sounds much more distinct and much more beautiful. Listen to this next part. There's just three notes happening at any given moment. There's a clarity that comes with that sparser arrangement. The leading tones can really come through, and you can hear the arc of the line. You can hear it moving upward in this much clearer way. Again, here's the first way of playing it. And here's the second way with a whole bunch of those notes removed. So Bobby McFerrin doesn't even have three notes to work with, he only has his voice. So what he does is this very clever mix of low, middle, and high notes that constantly implies the cordial motion of the song without ever losing sight of the melody or the lyrics. With that said though, listen to this section. This is where he just sings through the harmony and pay attention to what he's doing. He's singing a low part and a high part and he's bouncing back and forth between them. Alright, well there's there's kind of a lot of amazing stuff going on there. First of all, I do just want to shout out the fact that he's doing this brilliant thing where he inhales sometimes, but he inhales on notes that he can kind of sing through the inhale, which allows him to keep this thing going, this kind of perpetual motion machine, despite the fact that he's singing and he needs to take a breath. He does this like, boom, 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 and it creates the note without straining his vocal cords. It just lets him kind of imply the note with his breath. Listen for that. It's unbelievably delicate. I mean, that stuff is really hard to do. And it goes to show if you really sing quietly, I mean, he's singing very quietly to maintain this level of control. It makes this kind of thing more possible, but it's super hard to demonstrate the kind of restraint that he's demonstrating to do this kind of stuff. Like, it is really instructive to try to make these kinds of sounds. This boopy boopy boop. Like it's really hard to do. To do a little bit more close reading on this, what he's basically doing is mimicking the bottom and middle strings on McCartney's guitar part. He's in B-flat, the song is originally in G, but um, he's I think B-flat is just better for McFerrin's voice. But he's basically singing, Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Which like, whew, even at that tempo, but he's doing it way faster. So it's more like, Blackbird singing in the dead of night. <laughs> like, what? 
Just the sheer number of mode switches that he's doing between his different registers, he's doing little pops and little physical sounds with his mouth and his body, the whistling that he's jumping to, it's all so light and it sounds effortless, but it's extremely complicated. Give me a break. And yet as virtuosic as this performance is, it's still staying remarkably true to the original. McFerrin has isolated the single note voiced counter melodies that made McCartney's original guitar part so iconic. And by bouncing between them, he's managed to recreate them live on stage using only his voice. It's pretty unbelievable. It's yet another beautiful Beatles cover, that, like Earth, Wind & Fire's cover of Gotta Get You Into My Life, and Ray Charles' cover of Eleanor Rigby, manages to be completely transformative without losing sight of that essential spark, that bit of brilliance that made the song worthy of being covered in the first place. And that'll do it for Strong Covers Volume 2. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and thanks to everyone who's written in over the past few months with suggestions for covers that I might talk about in the future. There are way, way too many great covers for me to hit all of them on the show, but I'll certainly be doing Strong Covers Volume 3 at some point in the future, and I'm always open to hearing new ideas, so feel free to drop me a line at listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. Every time I look at the news, it feels like I'm hearing about some new podcast network or podcast getting bought by Spotify or Apple or Amazon. It's kind of scary to be an indie out here just sort of making my show, watching these behemoths become even bigger. But at the same time, it's kind of cool. It's cool knowing that I'm able to just make the show that I want to make and that I'm totally supported by listener dollars instead of ad dollars or corporate dollars. I've been on the other side of that. I have made work that I didn't actually own, and it's a huge drag, especially in the long term. So it's really important to me that I own this show and I'm able to do that. I'm able to create something that I fully own and control. Thanks to all of your support. So for real, thank you so much to everybody who supports the show on Patreon. You're making this possible and if you'd like to chip in, if you'd like to put in a vote for independent creator-controlled media, go to patreon.com slash strong songs. This episode's outro solos is a good friend of mine who I recorded a little while back, but I haven't featured for a bit, bassist Sam Howard, who plays with all sorts of groups from the Whalen Jennies to Avio Donovan, Molly Tuttle, and Tony Furtado. Sam and I are buds from back in music school, and actually, my next episode is going to be a conversation with another incredible musician that I went to school with. I'm very excited for you all to hear it. But until then, stick around for Sam, and I'll be back in two weeks with more Strong Songs. Strong Songs.